Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays, your weekly podcast on sex and sexuality, with an emphasis on BDSM kink and poly relationships. This week is part two of our discussion on kink and family. I'm joined by the lovely Katja. Good evening. So formal. I know, I was mixing it up a little bit. I like that. Perhaps we should do a formal session sometime. The problem is, is then it wouldn't be a joint podcast because all you would say is yes, sir, and no, sir. I'm okay with that. Doesn't make for scintillating conversation. <laughs> and the fans like it when you get a little sassy, <laughs> when you're a little bit of a spicy sub. But the question is, do you like it, sir? I do. And I encourage it in you because there is a difference, as I mentioned in our last episode, there's a difference between disagreement and disrespect. We can disagree on anything, and I don't ever want our relationship to be something where I have a different opinion on something, and you just say, yes, sir, even though you don't believe that in your heart. If I can't win my argument by you know, facts and logic and a good argument, then I can't win my argument. I don't want to use my position as a dom to win arguments. That's something I never want to do as a dom. So there's a lot of things that we disagree on. And that's perfectly fine. When it comes to kink, I definitely want your opinions to be from you. Otherwise, I just have someone saying, yes, sir. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I don't, I don't need that. I could have a soundboard if I wanted that. So, yeah, I do enjoy that. And I do want your feedback. And I want you to let me know when you have a completely different idea of something. And I think that our best conversations so far have come out of that, I think this, however you think, something completely different. As far as I know, this episode may be that way. <laughs> so on the last week's episode, I talked about talking to your kids about sex in general, but specifically talking to your kids about kink. You know, is it ever appropriate? Should you talk to your kids about kink? Should you share your kinks with your kids, etc.? And you know, the long and short of what I said last week is, sure, absolutely, when it's appropriate for them, when they can understand it, if it's something they want to talk to you about. I said that you can talk about kink without telling them your kinks, just like you can talk to them about sex without describing your personal sex life. Sure. We have a very strong hang-up with sexuality in the States. And the people in the States will know this, of course, our overseas viewers we'll still be kind of baffled that we can have so much violence and so much, you know, yeah, pretty much violence on TV, but you'll never see a naked breast. That's completely taboo. And it's just the way we are. And it's ridiculous and it's silly. And believe it or not, some of us Americans realize it's ridiculous and silly. However, it's still the culture that we live in. It's still the sea we swim in. So a movie can have you know, enormous, very brutal action scenes and still be rated for everyone. But if there's any talk of sexuality, if there's any talk about breaking gender norms, if there's any talk about taboo subjects like kink, for example, that's going to get a hard R rating, restricted rating, meaning for 18 and up. So when you're talking to your kids about sex, having that conversation is crucial, obviously, I believe, and figuring out when is the right time to have it, I think is something a lot of parents sweat over. And that's why you're perfectly here <laughs> because you're getting right around that time in your, your career as a parent sure. where it's going to come up pretty soon. Well, I mean, it has come up. Um, I think I've handled it pretty much the way my parents handled it with me. Um, you know, I remember, I think as an adult, asking my mom, you know, hey, I don't remember us ever having that conversation, but I just remember always knowing. And what she said to me was, we didn't have one big conversation. I just asked questions at various times and she answered them as they came up. And that's really the 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 way that I've handled it with my daughter. Um, you know, I don't really remember the first time that we talked, but, you know, the way I've explained things has gotten gradually more sophisticated over the years, you know, starting out very, very simply. And then when I thought she was ready for something more detailed, um, you know, not only would I have discussions with her, but I've provided her with books, whether they are, um, you know, one example would be a book that, is, that you know, gives diagrams of both boy and girl 
bodies and parts and lots of explanations. I've given her a book on periods and that kind of thing. And and so it's just been a mix. She really doesn't want to talk about any of this. I mean, she'll ask questions and I'll get two sentences in and she's like, okay, that's enough. That's enough. So I, I just kind of do what I can to verbally tell her things. I provide her with materials and, you know, and she comes back to me with more questions sometimes or, you know, one time recently, she told me she really, really wanted to read one of those books and she couldn't find it and asked me to help her find it. So we've just been handling it a bit at a time. I think she's a little bit, I think, atypical in terms of, I think, being less interested than kids her age normally would be. Um, she's convinced that she will never have a romantic or sexual relationship. <laughs> and so her her gross out factor is kind of high with all this. Her reaction to this is not a lot different than her reaction on a lot of things. And it's not like she has a special taboo about sex and she doesn't want to talk about that. She'll frequently ask a question and then when she's had enough information, she'll tell you. Right. Okay, that's Yeah, no, I think it's, it's much more about how her personality is very much not wanting any change in any respect to anything. And that includes her own body. (laughs) You know, she recently asked if she could have some kind of surgery not to, you know, ever have a period. And this isn't an expression of gender identity, you know. (laughs) This is just, I always want to stay the same. I only want to live with my parents. I don't even want to go to college. (laughs) So... And I, I can understand there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of, you know, what's going to happen to me? How am I going to change? This sounds very scary. Like, I can imagine... I don't remember having those fears. I remember being very anxious in when's this going to happen. Yeah, and I, I felt I the same wait. way. And I, I guess I thought I think I still think most people tend to feel that way, just because you know when you're a little kid, you want to be a big kid. You're always looking up to people the next step ahead of you in life and wanting that next thing. And that's definitely how I felt. But that's not how she feels at all. She also has a precocious ability to research things on her own. That is true. And will often surprise me when we're talking. We we drove by a Planned Parenthood recently and there were protesters out front, which I'm going to take a hard stand saying that could not be more wrong than, you know, harassing people in that particular point in their life. That's a very low blow in my opinion. But as we passed them, she asked, you know, what are they doing? And I had this, my thought was, well, how do I explain what's going on here at a level I think she's ready for? And I said, well, that's a that's a clinic especially for women, and they have special things done there, and those people are against those things. And she piped up from the back seat and said, oh, you mean abortion, right? <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> but she didn't press that issue, and I didn't go into it any further. I feel like it's a good idea to let them lead a bit, you know, follow their lead as far as where they're at with questions, where they're at with curiosity. At the same time, as I've worked with you, I feel like you do have to kind of push on the door sometimes because it is a difficult conversation. I think it is something that's hard to bring up. It can be uncomfortable to bring up and having your parent help you along without being pushy. There's that balance there. Because, you know, at some point, if she doesn't ask, you're going to have to tell, unless you want to outsource that to the internet. Right. Well, and that's why, you know, I think we're still quite a ways off from her having any kind of interest in a sexual relationship with anyone else. But, you know, periods, right? That's something that she needs to know about because... Um, it could happen anytime now. Yeah. There are other girls in her, her class that are that have already gotten their periods. And so one thing we did was I, I ordered her a little kit to keep in her backpack. And she didn't really know what to do, obviously, with, with the pads and that kind of thing. So I, you know, I, I got my own pad and I got underpants and I put them on over my my pants and I demonstrated how to do that. And and even as uncomfortable as she can be, you know, she wanted to know how to do this thing. And so she was actually totally happy to have that guidance. And it's good for me, too, because, you know, I am divorced. And and so there's a good chunk of time that she's with her dad. If I'm not there when she gets her first period, I, I want to make sure that I've equipped her as well as I can ahead of time. We were on a road trip one time. I had asked you, you know, have you had this talk yet? Have you gone into this with her? And much against your inclination, I made you pretend like you were telling me you know, how sex works. It was 
a very awkward conversation. <laughs> it was not comfortable for you. But I do feel like you know, having that run through, having that, even if it's a pretend conversation with you in a mirror, having that conversation. So you kind of start, you know, getting yourself prepared for it. So you know what you're going to say. You know how you want to broach it. Still understanding that they may come at it from a completely different point of view and different questions and things you're not prepared for. When it comes down to things like kink and alternative sexual practices, mm -hmm. if she makes it up to the teenage years and that's still never come up, is that something that you're going to want to sit down someday and say, so, kiddo, there's this thing? No, I, I don't ever, I don't feel the need to do that if she doesn't bring it up. But if she does bring it up, especially if she brings it up because she has some kind of interest, then I would want to talk to her about it in a very kind of open and accepting way, not necessarily needing to get into any kind of major detail about my personal relationships, but letting her know that, you know, I do have information for her to help keep her safe and that she can feel okay about this, that this is not something that makes her weird or, you know, wrong. I, I would be comfortable having that conversation with her some point down the road. <laughs> yeah, but what I suspect is going to happen sooner than that <laughs> is I, I think that she's she's already noticed a couple of times um, sirs, and I've already had to kind of brush that off as a nickname. You know, because I, I don't, I, I intentionally do not call him sir in front of her, but, you know, it's hard because the rest of the time I do. And so it slips out sometimes. When you say noticed, you mean huge lapses in protocol that have caused her to say, why did you call him that? I'm not sure. I don't really remember specifics. The answer is yes. That's precisely. <laughs> Text messages that have gone awry. I'm sure you're not the first person that mistexted their kids. Something That's true. That I have done really, that before. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have all done something similar. <laughs> Make sure you double-click who you're sending that message to. Fortunately, it was nothing inappropriate or obscene. It was just out of context and difficult to explain. Yeah. And so I think, you know, at this point, I just don't think she has enough frame of reference to get in the right ballpark of <laughs> of why I call him sir. But it's definitely possible that at some point in her teenage years, she'll start to have a little more of a clue. And we might end up having to have a conversation because of that. So you started in your kink journey really early. Sure. In fact, some of your first intimate relationships were kink-based. But it was not something that you would have talked to your parents about. No. So, you know, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before that my earliest explicit awareness of kink would have come from a book that I actually did take off my parents' shelf. But it was The Joy of Sex, which is sort of encyclopedia style. It covers lots and lots and lots and lots of things with very short entries describing what they are. And I took that book and I kept it under my bed until my mom found it and took it away and got me age-appropriate library books. But up to that point, the only two entries I remember in that book are bondage and spanking, because that's what I was really, really, really intrigued by. And I was, you know, probably 10, 11, 12. And sorry, I forgot the question you asked well, if I had... Not to play psychologist with you, yeah. but why do you think those two things appeal to you versus the, you know, very frank and clear depictions of regular sex didn't? Did you know that there was something taboo about kink and spanking and that kind of thing? No, I or just... Or did that just, oh, wow. No, I think that it just appealed to what was already in me. So those that was the first time i remember seeing things that were explicit mm -hmm. but if i go back further in my childhood i had my own attractions to power much much younger so for example second grade contest where if you read enough books the teacher will take you to wendy's for lunch <laughs> and i had a, a a girl crush on my teacher not in a sexual way but like in a person in position of authority over me kind of way. That That's really a, a recurring theme throughout my life. But starting much younger than I had actual sexual feelings, I've always just been like really attracted to and wanted the attention of people in positions of power over me. And I think that the bondage and spanking played into that natural inclination. I don't think it really had anything to do with taboo. I would need to look back on that particular book. I, I remember seeing that when I was a kid as well. It was a very popular book in the late 70s and 80s. I don't remember if it really discussed how the power dynamics of kink work. No, I don't think did. so. But I think I still think that there's something innately 
about power when it comes to being tied up, when it comes to being spanked, because spanking you associate with, at least I have an association of spanking with definitely being in a position of vulnerability as a young child. You're certainly not the only person that has seen something, even in popular culture, someone getting tied up by a bank robber and feeling some sort of awakening. I remember seeing a meme recently that it showed a kid watching TV and I think it was Robin Hood where it gets tied up and the caption was, you know, why do I feel funny? Like understanding that for some people, those early images spark something in them that really trigger something that they don't really understand why it's exciting to them or understand why they're drawn to it. But as I've spoken to a lot of people in the kink community, a lot of them have that early memory of, oh yeah, I remember seeing this scene in this movie where this person was overpowered or this person was spanked, etc. And it really turned them on, often even before they understood what being turned on meant. It was very exciting to them. It was very something that they kept returning to and thinking about. You know, this dovetails well with my personal theory that we're pretty much born this way and we like the things that we like. We didn't, you know, I didn't choose to like this particular style of play. It just do. And I think for a lot of people, as we're becoming sexually aware and becoming aware of ourselves in general, at, right around that time, we kind of fasten on to these little points, whether it's media or an experience we had. And those become the first stepping stones of our kinky personality. For people that, you know, would not identify as being kinky, for people that would think of themselves as very, you know, cis, hetero, straight ahead, don't do anything that's not vanilla. I've had conversations with those people too. And it's surprising once they feel comfortable, what they're willing to divulge and admit about their deepest, darkest fantasies. But they're ashamed of them. They feel like it's bad and it's dirty and it's something they shouldn't be turned on by, yet they are very much turned on by it. The cornerstone of being kinky is embracing it and saying, this is fine. Spanking turns me on and I'm okay with that. And as long as both people are consenting and having a good time, spanking is fine. Tying is fine. Flogging is fine. All the kinks are fine as long as two people consent to it. Sure. And I guess that's the only thing, like, I don't think you ever need to sit down and explain your paddling fetish (laughs) I think what would be a good conversation would be to say, you know, hey, some people are turned on by these things and that's fine. Having the consent conversation, having the enthusiastic consent is the key to all of this, whether that's first sexual experiences, don't feel pressured into it, don't do it out of guilt or whatever, do it because you want to. Yeah. And I think, you know, that kind of conversation, I think, has become very widespread already To the extent that I do think that that idea of consent and needing to give consent before it's okay for someone to have physical contact with you, I think that underlies some of the the way that she is about hugging, right? So it used to be that when people, when you're a child and people want to hug you, they hug you. And she is very aware of, you know, no. I get to say who hugs me, when they hug me, they need to ask first, all of that kind of thing. Which is good. And I definitely know that in my growing up, we didn't talk about consent. Right. In my day, back in my day, kids, it was very much movies like Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds, where it was you pursue the girl as hard as you possibly can. And if she says no, you just pursue harder. Right. That was definitely the message. And it was... The idea of coercing someone, cajoling someone, begging someone to have sex with you was A-OK. That was done for laughs in every teenage movie, whereas now that's very unacceptable. And for good reason. I'm not saying I wish it was like the old days. I'm very glad that we have talked about consent and that it's wrong to coerce somebody. And that's the enthusiastic consent part. Right. Because it's one thing, you know, to get someone not to say no It's another thing entirely to see that they are willing and they're excited and they want to do this thing with you. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't come from, oh, please, I'll die if you don't. I'll do bad things to myself. Yeah, (laughs) All those horrible things that I'm serious that that's kind of how we were taught. That that was demonstrated to us as normal sexual behavior. You know, chase after the girls until you catch one. And that's not how it should be. So, yeah, I'm glad that. She has definitely internalized that. Yeah. And hopefully that will carry forward to the rest of the stuff that she may or may not do. Yeah. 
who knows if she's going to change her mind on I know. never <laughs> relationship. A lot of kids definitely have that, ooh, gross, I don't want to see the other gender. Right. And then at some point, it's like, oh, there's this other gender. <laughs> or maybe the same gender. We don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. I want to be open. I want to be frank and easy about these conversations. And when I was speaking last week about, you know, they may not be interested in it, I was definitely thinking about our relationship. I'm very comfortable talking about sex. Obviously, this is what I do. And I'm comfortable talking with kids about sex at the level that's appropriate to them. So it would not phase me to have as much conversation as she would want. But my interaction so far has told me she's not necessarily going to want to have that conversation. And if she's interested in it, I'm all for it. But I don't want to make her have that conversation until she's actually ready for it and wants to talk about it with that one caveat like i said is i feel like if you wait too long the information's going to get there and it may not be the best information so how do you judge that getting ready to graduate college we should probably <laughs> talk about this or just assume that they have already you said that you, you don't remember having a singular birds and the bees conversation right i get the feeling anyway that you know, you and your parents' generation are the kind that didn't really have those open conversations about sex and relationship and such. I mean, I I definitely wouldn't have felt comfortable with my dad, but my mom, yeah. No, I, I she says that I asked questions and she answered them, and I 100% believe that. You know, my mother is a very matter-of-fact person, so. I never did. No. So I, I can say on my side, that conversation never happened. Now, partly because I wasn't actually raised by the boomer generation. I was raised by my grandparents who were the depression generation. They didn't talk about it. Sex didn't exist. We never spoke about sex in any way, shape, or form. And it was very taboo. It was seen as dirty. It was seen as shameful and something that any notion of sexuality with the hammer of the church was really hammered down and pressed down. And we were taught to be ashamed of being naked. We were taught to be ashamed of our bodies, et cetera. And I know that it wasn't done with malintent. I know they weren't trying to mess us up, but I know that speaking to a lot of people of my generation and including people now, religion is one of those hammers that's used. But even in you know a secular household, there can be a lot of shame and dirtiness associated with sex. And I don't know why that is such a, I don't know why that taboo continues now. You know, everybody's excited about a baby shower announcement, but nobody wants to talk about how that baby was made. And we don't talk about that. That's dirty. That's shameful. And again, we don't have to have every conversation be this libertine bacchanalia where we discuss exactly what we did in the bedroom last night. But I would like to swing the pendulum more towards being able to talk about sex in a frank, open, and adult way without it being this taboo, shameful thing because of all the negative aspects that come from suppressing any talk of sexuality and teaching kids that their bodies are dirty and shameful and that they shouldn't feel this thing. And if they feel this way, they're going to hell. That seems like a fairly far pendulum swing for where I would like things to be. I'm not trying to swing it to the other direction, as some conservatives would accuse us of, of we want to indoctrinate nine-year-olds and give them all sex toys. That's not where I'm at either. I think that we have to follow their lead to an extent and do this stuff and have these conversations with their well-being in mind. We don't have to give them a full college-level class on human sexuality and gender identity, but teaching them about consent, teaching them about what's safe and not safe in sex teaching them that sex can be a good, fun, pleasurable, healthy thing, not something they need to be ashamed of or thought of as dirty. So finding that balance, that's that's what I'm trying to do here. So the whole episode last week was brought on by a question we got, which was, you know, do you guys play in front of the kids? And we don't. We don't play in front of the kids for the same reason we don't have sex in front of the kids. It's a personal thing to us, not because it's shameful, but because it's not really appropriate. So with our 24-7 DS relationship, how does it change on the weeks where you have your kid here? Well, when she's with us, how does it change? I mean, I don't call you sir. Try not to call me sir. Anyway. 
I don't overtly ask permission for things I would normally ask permission for, but I still try to obtain that permission surreptitiously. <laughs> Whether it's a text message or just phrasing something as more of a statement when I would normally phrase it as a request, but still kind of wanting that nod or whatever it is. So let's give a little bit of insight into how does it look when the kid isn't around? Yeah. Which is, you have certain rules, you have certain things you have to do, you have certain things you have to ask for permission for. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to get into an exhaustive list of what that is, but it's just part of our play and our dynamic. Where between the two of us, I'll say, okay, before you do this thing, you have to ask me first. Again, this is not power tripping. This is not something where I get a huge thrill from being in control. It's how we play our power dynamic. It's these little things throughout the day that allow us to play in this 24-7 way where I'm not having to have you under close control and telling you to get dressed and telling you to do the next task and then hand-holding you through the entire day. Right. You're independent as you move about the day and there's these little speed bumps right. that kind of remind you that, oh, I want to do this thing, but I have to ask sir first. And with all of these, we're experienced players. We've been doing this a long time. So some of these things have time limits on them where... If I'm not around or I'm busy and Katja has asked permission for something and I haven't gotten back to her, there's a 10 minute time limit. Whereas if I don't get back in 10 minutes, then the answer is yes. So they're obviously low stakes things, but they do keep us in play throughout the day. So those are the more physical actions. And of course we curtail those when the kid is around. So instead of overtly asking me, you know, sir, may I have a snack? I might get a text message or I might get it mouthed to me while the kid isn't looking, that kind of thing. <laughs> or Katja might say something like, wow, a snack would be great right now. <laughs> it's actually kind of fun because as I've said before, we do like to play in public in the same way we play in private where we're always playing. But if we're in a public setting, if we're at the grocery store, those rules still apply. So now we have to figure out a way to do those things without everybody around us looking at us like we're crazy. Yeah. So it's the same kind of play. It really is. It really is very similar to just when we're out in public. One thing I, I would say is that I almost don't like the word play just because our normal state feels so natural to me mm -hmm. that it actually feels like the norm. So our 24-7 dynamic, whether it's calling you, sir, or asking permission for things, or, or just kind of the way I relate to you, that just feels natural. And when we're out in public, that's where my tension level is up a little bit because I'm, I'm very relaxed into the DS and I'm a little bit tense trying to remember not to do DS. And so it can, it's really kind of the same thing when my, my daughter is around, which is remembering not to do the things that have just become very natural to me. So, and it is play. Even though we do it 24-7, it's a very natural thing for us. We're going to get into some episodes about these long-term, you know, kink dynamic relationships and how to keep them fun and exciting day to day, month after month, year after year. And rules like this is part of that set because they do, when you want to go do something and you think to yourself, oh, I have to ask, sir, you were still my submissive right up until that moment of decision. Having to make that decision crystallizes it. It's mm -hmm. a hard reminder throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And I found those to be very helpful. Some people, when they're doing long distance DS, the dom will send commands to the sub just to keep them in that subspace to remind them throughout the day of the relationship because it can fall by the wayside. When you're working, you're doing errands, you're doing your tasks, your chores, you can kind of forget that you're playing this fun, exciting thing. And then all of a sudden you run into one of those little reminders. You run into one of those, oh, that's right. In order for me to do this mundane thing, I have to ask somebody else's permission and I get a little thrill out of that. <laughs> I get a little excitement out of that. So it does work throughout the day as those reminders. The way that we play, I've, I've tried to engineer all these so that they're beneficial in more than one way. But I could have something where every 45 minutes you need to check in. You need to send me a picture or you need to do something. And we have done that in mm -hmm. the past, especially when I feel like you're feeling disconnected or you need a little bit more reminder. Yeah. Since we live together, that's not as necessary. But it is important to, as you go through a day-to-day -day cycle of being DS, et cetera, to hold those reins, but don't hold them too tightly so that you're really constraining your partner and not let them go so loose that they kind of forget what's going on. 
And we have achieved a very good balance where it's very rare that I feel like I have to jerk on those reins and remind you. This actually has a point. And it seems like a very long, circuitous route. When Katja and I are playing in public, which we, of course, when I say we're playing, we're just being ourselves in public. So she's not calling me sir. She's not overtly asking my permission, etc. There is a shamefastness in Katja where if I overtly play with her, <laughs> where other people can obviously see us, it both mortifies her <laughs> and excites her. And she knows that I have no shame. So when we choose to not play openly in public, it's not because I'm ashamed of being kinky. It's just to move through our day with as little friction as possible. But if we're in the grocery store, I have no problem with pulling Katya aside and giving her a very stern talking to with everybody around us seeing what's going on. And Katya knows this. And she has this both dread and excitement about it. <laughs> so I mention this because I would not do that in front of her kid, no right. matter what. Right, right, right. No matter how severe the infraction was, I would never break that fourth wall with her kid around. So this is one of those things where in public, you know, you're never going to see these people again. It's a little embarrassing. It's a little thrilling, but nobody cares. At the end of the day, they're going to be like, you wouldn't believe what I saw at the grocery store today. This guy chewed this woman out and slapped her on the ass. But that kind of interaction in front of the kid, I think, would be very inappropriate. So no matter how bad the infraction is, that will never happen. It will be dealt with, as I'm sure you know. It just will not be dealt with in front of the kid or in any way where the kid would be aware of it. Because I do have an ironclad rule of this is Kacha's kid. Kacha makes those decisions and Kacha would not want that to happen. Which actually brings us to something I was thinking about earlier that I, I thought we would probably get into today, which is how does our DS dynamic work with regards to decision making for my kid? Yeah. I'm going to let you lead on that. How, how, do you <laughs> um, how does it work? I think that our DS dynamic is what it is. And ultimately, he does have control, but he chooses to cede that control to me for the purpose of dealing with my child. Sure. But I would say, but there have been a couple times when he's actually kind of stepped in a little more authoritatively, not in front of my daughter in terms of like how I should deal with the situation because I wasn't being assertive enough or kind of enforcing, you know, that she needed to listen and that kind of thing. And so he wouldn't say that in front of her, but to me, you know, he would enforce like, here's what you need to do. And I actually really appreciate it. Like I think some people out there, depending on their DS dynamic, they would feel like their toes were being stepped on. But I actually appreciated it because I know he's right. <laughs> and so for me, it was like helpful parental coaching. <laughs> and that's that's exactly what I try to leave it as. Because if Koch and I were a couple and this were our kid, we would have to have a lot more conversation on, I think we should go this direction and you think you should go this direction. I would love it if we had some kinky parents out there that have had this where does being mom and dad intersect with being dom and sub? For some people, it's going to be, well, the dom makes the rules, and that's how it is. It doesn't matter whether it's being parents or not. For me, my rules for Katja are ironclad. I know how I want her to be, and she will be that way. But I try to take as much of a hands-off approach when it comes to Katja's kid. Because not only is it Katja's kids, but it's Katja's ex-partner's kid, right? So I'm, I'm a third wheel here. It's not my decision to make. It's not my right as the boyfriend to be trying to impose my values and my thoughts and ideas on how she raises her kid. You know, for example, say there was a summer camp and the kid absolutely didn't want to go to summer camp. For me, I would want the kid to go. I would think that that's a good experience. And I would say, well, sorry, kiddo, you're going. That's my take on how to be a good parent. I don't think Katja feels that way. In fact, I know Katja doesn't feel that way. And if the kid had said, no, I don't want to go, Katja would have said, okay, then you don't have to go. I can respect that form of parenting, even if it's not my choice. So say that situation happened between Katja and I. I think the kid should go. Katja doesn't think the kid should go. I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm not going to press on that. I might talk to Katja and say, well, don't you think it would be good for her to have this experience, et cetera. 
but I'm never going to use my power as her dom to force that issue and say, you're going to tell the kid that she's going to go. I try to back up Koch's authority, not impose my will over her authority. In the case that you mentioned specifically, that's what I'm doing, is I want to help you enforce your own authority. Right. So, yeah. Because I can be a pushover, and and he's trying to get me not to be a pushover anymore. (laughs) I don't think you need to be a strict disciplinarian and treat me the way that my grandfather treated me. Like, (laughs) I don't think things were better back in the day where... If we mouthed off, we literally got hit. That was There was no question about it. There was no warning. There was no go stand in the corner. I distinctly remember being hit many times yeah. for very slight infractions, often things that were not our fault necessarily. There were a lot of grandkids, and it was kind of a corporate punishment. If one person got in trouble, things got hairy for all of us very quickly. And I don't think that was a better way. I do have very strong, you know, you'll do as I say impulses, but I have to temper those because it's not my kid. And I understand that and I respect that. I want to be a good influence. I want to try to be a good role model as much as I can for, you know, being a good person, being a good man, to overuse the word. I understand where my boundaries lie. I can't tell this kid what to do. And I don't try to. I have a lot of carrots and no sticks. (laughs) So I try to... I try to leverage those as much as I can. And so I can say things like, I'm happy to make you dinner. However, I need you to do this thing for me. So I have to be very careful because I know that my authority is very slender. Now, me being who I am and in charge of Katja, of course I could puppeteer Katja and say, I can't paddle your kid, but you can, so (laughs) go paddle your kid. I will never do that. That's not my style and it's not how I want to be a dom to someone that has a kid. I want to respect her autonomy. I want to encourage her and give her the support she needs to make the decisions she wants to make already. From my experience over these last years, I've seen that frequently you have a hard time standing up and and holding the line because it is hard. You know, it's hard to be the bad guy. It's hard to be the person that enforces the rule that was set down. Yeah. Um, you talk about a dom being a life coach with a crop. And to me, this is just really, it's an aspect of that, that, you know, he has a lot of years of experience of being a leader, right? And in different types of relationships. And, you know, he, he tries to help me learn those lessons that he's already learned, right? So the importance of being consistent, for example. Consistency is part of it. It's, it's one of those things. And as Katya has told me, you know, I have to pick my battles, which I absolutely agree. You know, you can't go to war with your kids over every little thing. And I don't like that style of parenting, the, you know, stand up straight, get your hands out of your pockets, tuck your shirt in, that kind of chicken shit. There's always something wrong. We're always, you know, always finding fault in the kid. I think that's nonsense and that's bad parenting. I think you do have to pick your battles though. And I think that once you say something, once you have chosen that battle, you can never back down from it. You got to stick to it. Decide, do you actually need to stop your kid from chasing after the ducks? Or is that a harmless kid thing to do? Probably a harmless kid thing to do. But if you tell your kid to stop chasing the ducks, you can't just tell them to stop and then let them go chase the ducks because you're undermining your own authority. If you're going to make that stand, you have to say, Tommy, stop chasing the ducks. And if Tommy doesn't, then you got to go get Tommy and make him stop chasing the ducks. Because, and I see this all the time, I'm always observing people and I see parents in the store and they'll tell their kids to do something and the kid won't do it. And then they just kind of drive on. And I think, why? You know, if it was important enough to tell them, it's important enough to make them not do it. Because every time that you tell somebody to do something and there's no follow through, you're just undermining what little authority you have. This comes from both a military background that I have. And also, I did a lot of youth leadership for a very long time. And my relationship with Koch's kid is much more similar to when I did, you know, kid counseling and youth group counseling, because those were also not my kids. I had limited authority with them. And yet I was entrusted with a certain amount of leadership and responsibility for them. You know, I had no sticks the same way here. I couldn't punish those kids. I could only not let them do things that they wanted to do with me specifically. Like that was the only stick I had, you know, if you keep misbehaving, you can't come on the field trip with us, that kind of thing. So it's much better to work on incentives. 
And at the same time with the, you know, don't make a rule you don't intend to follow, kids pick up on that so fast. They, they know that that person told me not to do something, but they never do anything if I do it anyway. So I'm not going to listen to them. And you lose your credibility so quickly. That's really where I'm at on this. There's so many different ways that I would do it. But I look at the situation and I say, no, this works. This is fine. It's not the way I would do it. But the child is not on fire. <laughs> the child's getting fed. The child's I just extinguish thing. her very quickly when you're not looking. Yeah. <laughs> I do pick that battle. And it, it's. I'm not saying it's easy. There's a lot of times where I have to kind of go off on myself and be like. <laughs> but again, I don't want to establish the relationship where I'm puppeteering Katja. You know, she's got to make those decisions. It's her kid. It's her family. So that's how I want to bring this around to your folks sure. is, you know, again, the same thing. I could insist when you were around your parents that you call me sir and you treat me like you would treat me at home. Yeah. But to what end? It's, it's not a power trip for me. I already know that you'll do it. I already know that you'll obey if I give you a command. I don't need to prove it to them and make them uncomfortable and therefore possibly harm our relationship or your relationship with them, et cetera. You've said that you've spoken to your mom about DS or right. at least kink in general. Right. Go into that a little bit. Sure. You know, as I recounted a couple episodes ago, the first time I talked to her about it was when I was, I think, about 21 and I was getting out of a relationship that was not good. And I, I called her and asked her to immediately drive six hours <laughs> to me. And um, she did, but she also wanted me to tell her what was going on. And so that was the first time I told her about kink and I told her about the relationship I was in. And, you know, she helped me shop, like hunt for apartments. How did that conversation go? Did you I say, know. I have this person that I obey and listen to? It was too long ago. I really don't remember. I, I don't think I minced words. I, I'm pretty sure I probably told her, there is this thing called BDSM. Here's what it is. That's what my relationship is, you know. Maybe your parents have been kinky this whole time and you just didn't no, know. No, there's definitely no way. So I did. Before you say that, let me say that you never know. That's possible, but I, I don't think so. Um, and I do remember way back when, she, so obviously she wanted to know because she wanted to know enough about, you know, why she was driving six hours. But she didn't want to know that much. Like, she definitely made the comment at some point, you know, you know, just like you don't want to know what goes on in the bedroom with your dad and me. Like, you know, she she only wanted to know kind of a limited amount, enough to kind of understand the situation, be there for me. We've really only talked about it when I've been in major breakups. We've never talked about it outside of that. So we had that one time and then 15 years, I think. <laughs> and then I was getting divorced. And... Um, we were in the car together and it was just very clear that I was upset and that it, there was, it was very clear that stuff was going on. And she just, she was upset because she just saw that people she loved were very upset and wanted to know what was going on. And in that conversation, I did literally say, you know, that thing I told you about when I was 21. And she immediately said, yes, sorry, that was a snap. <laughs> she, immediately, easy, she immediately said yes. So she, she knew exactly what I meant when I said that, um, that I meant BDSM, right? And that was kind of my entryway into explaining, you know, what was going on in my relationship with my ex-husband and, and why we were getting divorced. And I think I told her at that time, I, I, I explained the situation I was in. And, you know, I think I expressed I expressed in the course of that conversation that, like, look, this is a deep-seated need in me, right? Like, that's why I've been doing this. That's why it came back is because I was in this situation in my marriage where I was deeply unhappy. And so we had that conversation. And then I only remember one other conversation, which would be actually when that relationship with, with that Dom was ending and I was, you know, at her house and I was very, very, very sad. And I, again, I, I explained to her some details of kind of the contours of what was going on in that relationship and, you know, why I couldn't stay in it and why it was upsetting. And I, I said that thing that I mentioned on the episode a couple weeks ago where, you know, I expressed, you know, I wish I wasn't kinky because, 
I just saw it as being so problematic that the the kind of pool of options were so small. And she made that really nice comment that stuck with me that um, when I said, I wish I wasn't kinky, she said, but then you wouldn't be you. You know, despite having said back when I was 21 that she doesn't need to go know what goes on in my bedroom, I, I still have the feeling that I'm very accepted. Like she doesn't want to know details about it, but I still feel very accepted. She just takes this as this is a part of me. This is who I am. And she loves me. So based on her knowledge, Knowledge of your tastes in relationships. Yes. It's fair to say that she assumes that we have. I would think so, yeah. So I've never explicitly told her, you're my Dom. And I don't know the extent of her vocabulary or anything in that area. Like, I don't know if she even had the level of curiosity to Google, but she very well might have. Your parents are of the generation where they would have been, you know, definitely alive and adults during the latter part of the swinging 60s and the sure. 70s sexual awakening. It seems like they came from the more conservative side of the 70s and 60s. But I, you might be surprised what they got themselves up to. Well, I, no, We I always mean, underestimate our folks and how crazy yeah, they are. Well, no, I mean, obviously, you know, these are people who, until my mom found them under my bed, <laughs> kept a couple of books on sex in the living room bookcase, right? So these are not completely repressed people. Mm. Um, they definitely had some kind of sex life, but we definitely never talked about, we never shared any kind of details whatsoever about that. Why do you think it is so difficult to talk to your folks, not just your, why do you think it is difficult for one to speak with one's parents about sex? Have we just set it up as this institutional, we'd never go there? Because I do know I know, I should say, I know women that have really good and open relationships with their mothers where they can talk to their mom about sex like they would talk to a close girlfriend. And it's comfortable and their mom is, you know, supportive and okay with it or saying, no, don't do that thing. But not in an authoritarian way, but in a, listen, <laughs> listen this is not good. Don't, don't go there. Yeah. In good advice way. Again, much like you would talk to a close girlfriend. Why is it, I know it was definitely for me, I never spoke with my parents about sex. I never spoke with my grandparents about sex. And I know for a lot of people, there's just this huge barrier. They would rather eat glass than talk to their parents openly and frankly about sex. Is this just our culture? Yeah, I think it's just cultural. I mean, I think that... So with my mom, I definitely feel comfortable talking to her medically, right? Totally happy talking with her about period things. I ask her, uh, you know, have you ever experienced this thing when we're talking about like my reproductive system medically, right? So we are very open in that sense. But in terms of like sexual practices, no. And I think it's just because that's how I was raised. Like, I, so I think that I was just raised in this way of you can be like very open, like informationally, <laughs> informationally about sex education, but not on a personal level, not open on a personal level with, you know, your sexual experiences. And I wouldn't want to do it because I think it was just made clear to me that that's not something my mom would want. I wonder very much if this isn't just a thing that's been passed down. Sure. Like, I'm sure she didn't talk to her mom about it. I'm sure her mom didn't talk to her mom about it. Right. And now we've got to the point where you obviously don't want to talk to your kid about it. <laughs> Who, if she ever has kids, is not going to want to talk to her kids about it. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's a harmful or bad thing for parents to not have an open dialogue about sex where they speak with their kids openly about their sexual practices, et cetera. I wish it wasn't so taboo and I wish it wasn't so shameful and uncomfortable because I think a lot of things, including really bad things like sexual abuse, continue in large part because the kids don't want to talk to their parents about it. Yeah. As a sexual abuse survivor, I can tell you that I absolutely did not want to talk to my parents about it because I was sure that I was going to hell for the things that were done to me. I will say that that my daughter and I have had a very open conversation about sexual abuse and specifically because of a, a major case that was in the news that I was very interested in. Yeah. And she kind of caught enough of whether it was a podcast or whatever that she asked and she was old enough that I f at first it was in the news for a few years and so at first I just shielded her from it but then she got to an age where I felt like okay I think the time is right I can actually explain this thing to her and it's important that I do because I need her to know that um, in this case you know even if someone's your doctor you know this is not okay and so so we actually have had a very open conversation about that 
Well, leaning again on my experience as a youth counselor, I know that a lot of kids felt more comfortable coming to me with issues like this than they did their parents. Things that they would never want to talk to their parents about, they would still be fairly reticent to talk to me about, but I had a lot of those conversations. And I think that degree of separation helps. I think that knowing that it was an accepting and open place, you know, them knowing because of other conversations and just our general interaction that they could talk to me about things like that. And it wouldn't be somewhere where they were judged and it would be something where they could trust my confidence in that. It, it is hard. I think with parents, when you tell somebody something in confidence, I guess there's no secrets from your parents. Like once, maybe it's the duration of the relationship in that they've always known you and they're always going to know you. And so there's this fear of, sharing something with them that may come back to you 30 years later. I honestly don't know. I'm, I'm curious about this, and I've been thinking about this topic as we've been discussing this. You know, why is there that very strong hang-up? Why do we have such a hard time talking with relatives and parents, especially about things like sex, which, at least in theory, shouldn't be any more difficult than talking about the new job you got or the new boyfriend you got? But I know it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people. So, you know, write into me with your thoughts and experiences. Let me know about if you've talked to your parents about your kinky lifestyle, I'm sure that some of you are very open with your folks and your, your loved ones. I know that some of you don't even tell your partner about your kinks. And I understand that full spectrum. I've been there for the whole thing. So share that stuff. Give us your experiences. If you want to ask questions and make comments, that's why I want this to be a very interactive show. We'll probably end up coming back to this again. I think there's more lanes on this conversation that we didn't get to, but I think it's been a very full and enjoyable conversation and we're well over our, our time. A <laughs> uh, quick shout out to our Patreons. I love you guys and I really appreciate your support. Your support helps us pay for the web hosting and the cameras and the sound installation and all the stuff that makes this possible. The quality of the podcast is in direct correlation to the funds I get from the Patreon. So I really appreciate that. If you would like to become a Patreon, head over to our website, wickedfellow.com. You'll find all of our links there, social media, our contacts. The podcast is hosted there. Our YouTube page is hosted there as well. That will wrap up the show for this week. Next week, I plan to announce the new name of the podcast. I've had a lot of good submissions and you still have one more week to get those submissions in. So if you have a brainstorm of creativity and you want to share a name for the podcast, send that in before probably Friday. We'll say Friday is the last day for submissions. As always, consent is king. Take very good care of each other. And we'll, and we'll see, see you, you next week. week.